The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. And um, have been called, and they were serious Reformed Christians in, in England, uh, who in this second, third generation, fourth generation after the Reformation, they were very committed to the Bible. They believed in the centrality of preaching, in the necessity of personal conversion and practical piety. And they advocated for and worked for a more thorough reformation of the English church and its worship to conform to the scriptures over against the partial reformation that had been established by the Elizabethan settlement. This is how they come to be called Puritans. They were seeking to to purify the church, to further reform the church beyond uh, the degree to which it had been in some measure reformed under Elizabeth. The Elizabethan settlement was the resulting state of affairs in England after Elizabeth took the throne in 1558, and she reigned for a long time, for about 44 years. And she was what we might call a very moderate Protestant. And the situation for the Church of England, as it was established by law under Elizabeth, is what is described as the Elizabethan settlement. And it instituted only a partial reformation. By the act of supremacy, uh, the monarch was recognized as the supreme governor of the church. The 1552 uh, Book of Common Prayer was established as the Anglican, the Anglican church, the English church, sometimes called Episcopal church, the Anglican form of worship uh, with some minor revisions to the uh, Book of Common Prayer and threatening severe penalties for any dissent from it. Also, various relics of the old Roman Catholic worship remained in place, like priestly vestments, the the, the kind of outfit that they would wear, and uh, bowing before the elements of the Lord's Supper. Uh, The ecclesiastical structure established by the Elizabethan settlement was an Episcopal form of church government. That is a hierarchy of church leaders, bishops, having authority over the local churches and local ministers in various regions of the country. And Elizabeth was also careful to appoint bishops who supported her authority and her wishes as the governor of the church. The doctrinal statement of the Anglican church established under the Elizabethan settlement is called the 39 Articles of Religion. And it too is an interesting mixture. It's reformed rather than uh, Lutheran, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, is more Lutheran than Reformed in its doctrine of the church, with the church under state control and with the allowance of certain relics of the old Roman Catholic worship. But it was mostly Calvinistic in its doctrine of salvation. Well, again, uh, uh, Puritanism arose in England out of a desire to purify the church, to bring about a more thorough reformation of its doctrine, practice, and worship. And this conflict in England, what we're calling the Puritan era, is a long one, spanning the reign of several monarchs. First, there is Puritanism during the reign of Elizabeth, 1558 to 1603, which we've already considered. And then after she dies, she was the last of the Tudor uh, dynasty, and the Stuart dynasty takes the throne in the person of James I. And then we have Charles I, and then there's a civil war in England between the Parliament and the King and the establishment of the Commonwealth, the English Commonwealth, the Commonwealth period when England was governed as a Commonwealth with uh, Oliver Cromwell as the Lord Protector of England. 
And then this is followed by the restoration when Charles's first son, Charles II, is restored to the throne, followed by his son, James I. And under James I's reign, who was really, as we're going to see, more or less a Roman Catholic, um, there was a revolution. We have what's called the Glorious Revolution. And William and Mary uh, ascend to the throne of uh, England. And uh, the act of uh, toleration is passed in which uh, there's more freedom of worship for different groups, even including Baptists. So, so that's the, that kind of gives you an overview of that historical period we're looking at. Now we finish with the Elizabethan period. And by the time we get to the, 19, uh, the 1580s, uh, during the latter half of her reign, uh, there developed basically three types, we might say, three types of Puritans that had emerged. First, those who disliked many aspects of the Elizabethan settlement, though they were okay with the doctrinal statement, which was a, a good doctrinal statement, 39 articles, and they believed it would be schismatic and sinful anarchy to actively disobey, and they decided to conform, to encourage others to conform, and to focus their energies on preaching and teaching. And yet these men are sometimes called Puritans still because their theology was very similar to the men we would call Purit Puritans, but they in their conscience felt like they could remain and conform uh, to the requirements of the Anglican church. And then the second group were those who disliked not only vestments and other elements of medieval ritual in the church, but they also believed the Anglican church needed reforming in its organization. Now, some of these men still favored an Episcopal form of church government with bishops over regions and so forth. They were okay with that. Others of them favored Presbyterianism, and all of these in the second category, whether Episcopalian or Presbyterian, they desired that a church government and the structures to be made simpler, uh, to be more accountable, but they also determined not to be actively disruptive. They, they determined to concentrate on preaching and teaching, hoping that by this means to gradually build a grassroots uh, reformation so that parliament would eventually be permeated by their influence and that would result in an orderly and lawful continuation of the reform of the church without the great social upheaval uh, that would occur in a, if a, uh, in a revolution of some kind. Okay? And then there was a third category, a third Puritan group. This was made up of more aggressive Presbyterians who actively challenged the Anglican establishment and advocated the more or less immediate dismantling of it. And when you read the Puritans, sometimes if you read like the introduction, they'll give a little mini biography of this particular person. You're going to find some of the people that you like to read fit in these different categories. They're not all in the same category. And uh, but this group, they believe this third group, they believe Presbyterian Church government was the only biblical pattern and should be established by law. And they often sought to appeal directly to the parliament to take control of the church and to reform it. And then there's actually a, a fourth group we could mention here that gradually began to emerge. And these are called separatists. And separatists, uh, that refers to those who determined to separate from the established church completely. They, they came to the conclusion that the Anglican church was irredeemable, that it was unbiblical, that they should no longer be a part of it, and they completely separated themselves, and these are called separatists. And so you have uh, Puritan separatists, though technically speaking they weren't 
you know, we would call them Puritans, but they weren't in the category of those who were still trying to purify, reform the English church. They had pulled out completely and are referred to as separatists. All right, well, in our last class on this, we transitioned from Puritanism during the Elizabethan period to uh, Puritanism during the reign of James I. And this would be the period from 1603 to 1625. Elizabeth never married, and she died childless in March 1603. And so as you, as you look at who's next in line for the throne and the family relations and so forth, at her death, the throne passed to the Scottish king, James VI, who now became James I of England. And he was a committed Episcopalian. In other words, he was committed to the Anglican Church and to Episcopalian church government, including the continuance of uh, royally appointed bishops, which was viewed as, as a net by him and the crown as a necessary safeguard to their authority, the royal authority. On the other hand, his own beliefs about the doctrine of salvation were reformed. In other words, he was a Calvinist. And therefore, uh, when James became the new monarch of England, the English Puritans had high hopes uh, because they knew something about his doctrinal convictions. However, something else about him is that at the same time, though he could talk a good talk, he even prided himself in being something of a theologian, though he wasn't quite the great theologian he thought he was, but he prided himself in this, uh, his theological knowledge, and he could talk a good talk. He could engage the scholars and discuss these matters. But the reality is he basically lived a very immoral, pleasure-seeking lifestyle, especially in the latter part of his reign, including the fact that he was known for having homosexual relationships. Well, the first major event after his coronation was the Hampton Court Conference after James was proclaimed king, Puritan ministers in the Church of England saw this as an opportunity for them, and they very quickly organized a petition signed by a thousand ministers asking James to reform the English church. Now, the Anglican church at that time had about 9,000 ministers, so the petition represented only about one out of nine uh, of the ministers in the Church of England, but it was a very vocal and a very organized minority, and because it had 1,000 signatures, the petition is known as the millinery petition. Now, the demands that they made are some of the same things we, we see under Elizabeth. The petition requested an end to requiring such things as clerical vestments, making the sign of the cross at baptism, bowing at the name of Jesus, and the use of the word priest in the prayer book to refer to ministers. The signers of the petition also objected to what is called pluralism. <coughs> pluralism refers to men holding more than one church appointment, receiving more than one church income, uh, even though they don't actually there. They're not actually there serving. I mean, it's, of course, it's impossible to be in two places at the same time, right? So, the, and the petition also objected to ministers who did not actually preach. Well, the signers proposed a conference of scholars to discuss these issues to be presided over by King James. A conference was indeed scheduled. It took place at Hampton Court, uh, which is a royal palace on the Thames River, in January 1604. And by the end of the conference, the king had agreed to a list of moderate requests for Anglican reform. However, he never carried them out. 
Uh, none of those reforms were ever enacted. And eventually, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Richard Bancroft, imposed a new set of canons on all the clergy. All were now required to affirm in the most unqualified terms their acceptance of the doctrine, worship, and government of the Anglican Church. And somewhere around 100 Puritans were deposed of their positions in the church or were driven into exile for refusing to conform. And we also, I won't go back over all this again, we also uh, talked about the authorization of the King James Bible. This was under the reign of, of, of King James, and we considered some uh, classic publications, uh, books that were written during that time. But we're going to move on now to um, something else very important that occurs under the reign of James, and it's the emergence of the first Baptists, uh, and then also the American Congregationalists. Under James, separatism, you still have this, this stream of separatism that's continuing to exist as, as an underground movement. And there was one separatist congregation that met in Gainsborough in Lincolnshire, which was led by a number of men who, who were going to be very influential men. John Smith, Thomas, I'm not really sure how you say his last name. I know I'm not saying it correctly. It's H-E-L-W-Y-S and one time... Um, Michael Haken was telling us how to pronounce it, and I can't remember what it is. Do any of you guys remember H-E-L-W? It looks like it should be Hellwis, so I'm just going to call him Hellwis. Uh, so John Smith, Thomas Hellwis, John Robinson, William Bradford, and William Brewster. Do you recognize any of those names? Well, eventually this separatist congregation became so large that it split uh, for safety's sake into two congregations. In other words, the larger you are, the the more the possibility is that the authorities will become aware of what you're doing. So they split into two congregations. One group was led by Smith and Helwes and the other by Robinson, Bradford, and Brewster. And then eventually both of these congregations immigrated to the Dutch Republic in 1607, seeking a greater freedom to be able to worship without the fear of government interference. The Smith and Helwes group immigrated to Amsterdam, and there they came in contact with Mennonites. And this is going to take you way back in our study of the Reformation to uh, the what we, what's called the Radical Reformation and these groups that began to develop outside of the, uh, the magisterial uh, churches. And some of them had really strange beliefs. Some of them not, you know, were okay in some areas and things like that. Well, the Mennonites were an Anabaptist group and uh, John Smith was eventually Anabaptist, means they, they were called Anabaptists because they did not believe in the baptism of infants. They believed only in the baptism of those who profess faith in Christ, gave a credible profession. So in Europe, they were called Anabaptists, the, uh, the Mennonites. Well, John Smith came under their influence. He was eventually convinced that they were right about believers' baptism. And he then baptized himself in 1609, say, so how do you do that? Well, I'm not sure how he did it, but it's because there was no one else to baptize him. There was no minister uh, to baptize him. He was the minister of the church, so there was no one in their fellowship of churches to do that. So he baptized himself, and after which he then baptized Helwis, and they formed the first known English Baptist congregation. However, it's important to understand that they were not particular Baptists, Reformed Baptists. 
Under the influence of the Mennonites, Smith had also rejected a reformed understanding of sin and grace. He rejected the doctrine of original sin, and he advocated a kind of semi-Pelagianism, or we might say a kind of Arminianism. And thus they've been called General Baptists, General Baptists. Well, these two men, Helvis and Smith, eventually divided with each other. And Helvis and his group returned to England in 1611, and they formed the first known, at least first known, Baptist church on English soil. But again, they were not Reformed in their theology. They were more or less Arminian in their theology. Uh, they were called, have come to us, in history referred to as General Baptist. Uh, now, the other group that had migrated, remember the church in England, they had divided for safety, and both groups had migrated to the Dutch Republic. Well, the other group, remember, it was led by John Robinson, William Bradford, and William Brewster, and this group never embraced believers' baptism and remained Calvinistic. And in 1620, part of this church, under the leadership of Bradford and Brewster, immigrated to America. And these are what we Americans have come to know as the pilgrims, the pilgrim fathers. 28 adult members of the church and their children booked passage on the English ship, the Mayflower, right, on September the 6th, 1620. And their goal was to create a new community in Virginia, uh, the Jamestown colony in Virginia had already existed there since 1607. Now, the Jamestown colony was established more as a commercial venture, uh, though it was still a very, very religious colony because most of the people there were, were Christians, and, but its goal and its establishment was more or less for commercial purposes. Uh, the, these these uh, the pilgrims were going there uh, really primarily uh, to, to find a, to establish their their form of worship to be able to worship God freely, and even there was a concern to reach out to into uh, uh, to the Indian population. There was a missionary element that was driving them as well. Uh, so they were heading to Virginia, but the Mayflower was blown off course and it landed instead at Cape Cod, Massachusetts, in early November. Within several decades, there were three more religious colonies, Massachusetts, New Haven, Connecticut, New Haven, and Connecticut, all settled by Puritan separatists. And I, I, I say it this way, Puritan separatists or Congregationalists, and the reason I do is because this gets confused sometimes. Some of these, these were separatists, like the Pilgrim Fathers were separatists, completely separate. They, they did not want to have anything to do with the Church of England, right? But a lot of the Puritans, though they were Congregationalists, in other words, they practiced Congregational church government instead of the Episcopalian form of church government, still considered themselves as part of the Church of England. They didn't consider themselves as separatists. That would be true of like the Massachusetts Bay, uh, I can't remember the name of all the colonies, but that's a good distinction to make. It could be confusing. Not all of them were separatists. Some of them, though they had issues with the church in England, they still considered themselves as part of the church of England, and that though they practice a congregational form of church government. All right? Well, we're ready to move now from Puritanism under James I to consider Puritanism under Charles I. And now he became king after the death of his father, 1625. And his reign uh, was the context of really a massive upheaval. 
in English society. And it was partly fed by two things, his hostility to Parliament and his hostility to Reformed theology, particularly his hostility to Calvinism. Charles had inherited from James a belief in what's been called the divine right of kings. Anybody know what that, that means, the divine right of kings? Well, this was a, a view that monarchs are accountable only to God, not to their subjects or to representatives of their subjects, like a parliament. Now, James held to this view, but he had still attempted to cooperate with Parliament where it might help him, but Charles soon gave up the attempt. And from 1629 to 1640, he ruled without ever summoning the Parliament and by methods that his opponents believed to be unlawful and destructive to the English Constitution. And he may have gotten away with it if it weren't for something else. Charles used those same years to energetically promote what's been called the high church movement within the English national church. And this was, I'll explain that in a moment, but this was an assault on Puritanism. But more than that, it was an assault on the Reformed faith in general, much of which had a broad base of support. You remember there were different kinds of Puritans. The Reformed faith had a broad base of support within the Anglican church, even among those who would not consider themselves Puritans. And it looked to many as though Charles was undermining or even undoing the English Reformation. And how did people get this idea about him? So let's look at conditions in England under the reign of Charles I. First of all, as just mentioned, Charles was committed to high church Anglicanism. Now, what does that mean? Well, this was an emerging movement that advocated an Anglican church that gave greater emphasis to the sacraments in its understanding of how we receive God's grace. Very much like Roman Catholicism, it promoted the idea of the centrality of the Eucharist in worship. Though they didn't promote transubstantiation, they did promote the centrality of the Eucharist in worship, not preaching. The altar rather than the pulpit is to be the architectural focal point in the place of worship. And there was also a focus on the sensory in worship. In other words, restoring altar lights, the use of incense, and things of that nature. Well, Charles was uh, committed to this kind of Anglicanism. Secondly, sorry up there. Uh, Charles had a close bond with William Laud a high church Anglican who was eventually appointed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Laud, Laud is kind of a notorious uh, character in that period. Um, once he was in power with the king's support, he used all the legal machinery at his disposal to promote his high church vision of the church. And this included enforcing the use of the Ang Anglican prayer book in worship with no allowance for leaving any of it out or adding any of your own parts to it. Thirdly, ah, quit doing that, Jeff. Thirdly, this high church emphasis also came to be permeated with Arminianism. And you, this combination of high church ang uh, sacramentalism and Arminian doctrine was really an explosive mixture in 17th century. England. So Charles supported an Anglican Arminianism that was wedded to a sacramental view of the church as the mystical vehicle 
through which grace is imparted. And this was a perspective, again, that was not only anti-Puritan, it was opposed to all forms of Calvinism, no matter how much it might conform in matters of church government and worship. There were those who were willing to conform to the Anglican church government and worship, but this was different because this was really an attack on Reformed theology in general and Calvinism. Fourthly, with Charles's support, there were other reforms that Laud imposed that deeply offended the Puritans and the Calvinists within the Anglican church and really the majority of Anglicans. Reforms that seemed to those observing them to be moving the church backward in a Roman Catholic direction. And this was offensive, even to many, again, who had no liking for Puritanism. You may remember we learned that anti-Catholicism had become really deeply ingrained in the national soul of England since the days of Bloody Mary and the persecutions, you remember, under Mary Tudor. So when Laud began enforcing certain changes, there was widespread outrage. Two things in particular were offensive to many. One of them was the communion table was transformed into an altar. And this was an architectural change that was implemented in the places of meeting for worship. Laud also ordered all the churches to put their communion tables, now altars, at the east end of the building and to rail them off, to put a rail around them. And Needham tells us uh, that the east end of a church had symbolic significance in medieval Christianity. The sun rises in the east, so the east end was associated with Christ's second coming. And for this reason, the medieval altar was traditionally located at the church's east end. At the Reformation, these altars were generally destroyed and replaced with communion tables in the central part of the church, what was called the nave. So when Laud moved the communion table back to its old medieval position, this was alarming to many. This was viewed by many Protestants as an attempt to drag the English church back to the Middle Ages, both spiritually and doctrinally. And I mentioned he also had the altar railed off, and he decreed that worshipers must come to the altar rails to receive Holy Communion and come there in a kneeling posture. And again, in the popular mind, this smacked of a return to Rome where the actual the, the, the bread and the wine are worshipped. They're, they're bowed to. And uh, whether that's what he intended by this symbolism, that's what it conjured up again in people's mind. This is going back to Rome, you know. So that was the first thing, transforming the communion table into an altar and these things that went with that. And then the second thing he did that caused alarm was again fully supported by Charles. He sought to silence any preaching he didn't like especially Calvinistic or Reformed preaching. And he was following Charles's lead, who in 1626, by his own authority as supreme governor of the church, forbid all preachers to discuss predestination in their sermons. And Charles and Laud also cracked down on what were called lecturers. <clears throat> Sometimes when you're reading the Puritans, you'll come across this term, or maybe you're reading a biography of a Puritan that says he was a lecturer at such and such hall or whatever. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> lecturers were ministers of the gospel who were unable to find a parish to serve and sometimes this was because their conviction of their convictions their unwillingness to conform to certain Anglican requirements well one way Puritans got around that is that certain lay patrons of Puritanism wealthy supporters of the, of the Puritans they would by taking voluntary subscriptions support lecturers 
which is just another name for preachers. But in 1629, Charles imposed a new restrictive law on lecturers, tying them closely to the prayer book and the discipline of the Episcopal hierarchy. And he did this in such a way, uh, with such requirements, that it made it almost impossible for any lecturer with a Puritan conscience uh, to function. Another important Puritan organization that supported Puritan preaching that was suppressed by Laud was what was called Feofees for Impropriations. Feofees for Impropriations. Now, what in the world was that? Well, this was an organization that would purchase what were called impropriations. Impropriations were profits from the sale of church properties. And they would purchase these and hold them in something like a fund that would be controlled by individuals or a corporation. And then those funds would be used to buy what were called advowsons. Advowsons, A-D-V-O-W-S-O-N-S. Now, an advowson was a legal right to appoint a minister to a particular position in the Anglican church. You could purchase the right to do that. Well, the Feofees made sure the only Puritan ministers were appointed and supported by these funds. But in 1632, the organization was hauled before the courts by the crown. It was dissolved. Uh, it was sued and dissolved, and all of its assets were seized by uh, the crown. Now, when people saw these things happening, this crackdown on Reformed preaching, at the same time when Laud was turning communion tables into altars and so on, many believed that all of this was a conspiracy to overthrow the Reformed faith. Preaching was hugely popular in those days. I mean, uh, uh, preachers, effective, powerful, Reformed Puritan preachers were like the celebrities of their day. And people loved to hear preaching, and they would go to hear these men that were lecturers and Puritans that did have positions in the church to hear them preach. They were very, very popular. And so when many of the best and godliest preachers were being silenced, it was very provo provoking to many of the ordinary people in the public in a way that was dangerous. It was going to prove to be dangerous uh, to the peace of, of uh, the realm. And then finally, one other factor that greatly exasperated the situation. You know, if you read about Charles, I just finished a biography, another biography, a biography about him this summer. You realize this guy was clueless. He had no connection with the way his people thought about things, and he did a lot of really dumb things. Uh, he could have acted a little you know, more wisely and maybe avoided some of the things that happened, but here's one of the things he did. He married in 1625 the French Catholic princess, Henrietta Maria. And she was the sister of the French king, Louis XIII. Now, the marriage was, it was in a large part, a large element of it was political as part of an Anglo-French foreign policy. However, it meant that England now had a Roman Catholic queen. And this was very upsetting to many Englishmen. And bringing along with her to England with the queen were her Catholic servants and friends, including her father, confessor, the Scottish priest, Robert Philip. And there they were, right there in the English royal court. And all of that, Henrietta was very passionate about her Roman Catholic faith. And ordinary people started calling her 
Queen Mary, uh, doing so linking her back to the notorious Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary. So there are, these are the conditions that developed under the reign of King Charles I, conditions that would eventually and will eventually, as we're going to see, God willing, next time, ignite a civil war in England. Needham makes these comments. In retrospect, it is easy to see that King Charles and Archbishop Laud were heading for disaster. Yet monarch and bishop remained strangely blind. Neither man had any understanding of those who differed from them. Both were narrow-minded pedants. That's a, a person who is excessively concerned with minor details and rules. Laud, however, was the greater offender and attracted an extraordinary degree of popular hatred. But before we get to the Civil War that these things eventually will lead to, which is a very interesting period in, in English history, and I'll have to wait till next time. There's another development during the reign of Charles that happened uh, that I want to mention. We considered the religious condition in England under Charles, but then also it was during his reign that we have, secondly, the emergence of the first Calvinistic Baptists in England, or we might say the first Reformed Baptist churches. The first, the first English Baptists, as we saw earlier, had abandoned uh, reformed theology. But in 1630, a huge step in Reformation was taken by a certain, uh, certain London Puritans who renounced infant baptism while still embracing the rest of Puritan spirituality and, and doctrine and theology. And the place where this line was crossed was a separatist congregation in a place called Southwark, and it was pastored by a man named Henry Jacob. Now, Needham refers to him as a semi-separatist and, and because uh, though he did eventually separate from the Church of England, he still allowed that there were true churches within Anglicanism. He didn't totally write off Anglican, Anglicanism as totally apostate, though he believed the overall system was unscriptural. In fact, Jacob, Jacob himself began as a Puritan-minded Anglican minister. Uh, he was one of those ministers who signed the millinery petition that we referred to earlier back during the reign of James I. And his concerns about the need for reform in the Anglican church finally led him uh, to express what Needham calls moderately critical views in 1605 in a tract that he wrote entitled Reasons Taken Out of God's Word. And for that, he was thrown into prison. After being released from prison, he went into exile in the Dutch Republic, pastoring a separatist congregation in Leiden. He returned to England in 1616, and he helped plant the semi-separatist congregation in Southwark. Now, sometimes this church, you'll, you'll maybe hear it referred to by historians as the JLJ Church, the JLJ Church. And this is after the initials of the, its three pastors, its first three pastors, Henry Jacob, John Lathrop, and Henry Jesse, JLJ. Now, again, interestingly, though this church was, was no part of the, of the Anglican establishment, it did allow its members to attend Anglican services, to have their children baptized in the Anglican church, and it continued to recognize some Anglican churches as true churches. So, again, they're semi-separatists. They're not totally separatists. However, uh, some, of the, some of the exact details are a little bit uncertain. It seems that in 1633, a group of, group of 17 people led by a man named Samuel Eaton withdrew 
from the JLJ church. It was a friendly, amicable withdrawal, but they withdrew because they'd taken a step further in their ecclesiology to form a Baptist congregation. Or as Needham points out, at least it was a congregation of believers baptized on profession of faith. It's unsure at this point whether they rejected all infant baptism or Anglican baptism as invalid, but this was a congregation that, that promoted the baptism, baptism upon profession of faith, believers' baptism. And then eventually in 1638, some five years later, six more members withdrew from the JLJ church because they had embraced believers' baptism and they joined we're told they joined a church led by John Spilsbury. That's what the sources say, but it's very likely that Spilsbury was actually the pastor now of the original Baptist congregation that was formed by the 17 who had originally came, came out of the JLJ church. So by 1638, at the latest, there was definitely a Reformed Baptist church in London. And this was just the first of many then that began to emerge, that began to be formed. And they are often called, anybody know what they're often called? Instead of Reformed Baptists? Particular Baptists. Not because these people are real particular about stuff, <laughs> but because they, were, they, they held to the doctrine of election, they held the doctrine of particular redemption and so forth, and they referred to them as particular Baptists because of their Reformed convictions. By 1644, there were seven particular Baptist congregations in London, and in that year they published what has come down to us as the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, which doctrinally is very similar to our confession of faith. It was, it was, it was a smaller confession. And as we'll learn later, uh, particular Baptists continued to emerge in various parts of England until after the Glorious Revolution under William and Mary, our own confession was published uh, for the public, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It, some of the same authors were involved in the first London Baptist Confession. It was just more detailed. And it was an attempt to show that the Baptists were in agreement with the, the, the Puritans and the Westminster Confession on just about every doctrine except for believer's baptism. So it's, a lot of it was just taken directly out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, there were some parts of the Savoy Declaration that were included in, into the Baptist one. That was a Puritan congregational uh, doctrinal statement. And I think there were only maybe, I can't remember, I think it's seven original paragraphs, something like that in the confession. And they did that on purpose because, you know, they were being accused of all kinds of things. These people are Anabaptists, Mennonites, and they wanted all this kind of stuff. And they wanted to demonstrate by the confession that, no, we're in agreement with the stream of Reformed theology and churches. And uh, so they didn't try to be original. They drew a lot from those confessions that had already be, been written. And that's how we get our second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And by the time we get to 1689, there were lots of particular Baptist churches throughout uh, different parts of England. So next time, God willing, we'll come back to this. We'll consider the Civil War that broke out in England uh, during the reign of Charles I. And this is going to be followed by 12 years in which there is no king in England. Uh, the, there is an English commonwealth, and it's ruled by a lord protector and the parliament. And... Uh, then we're going to see how that came to an end and why it came to an end and what happened after that. And does it sound boring? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. So we've learned today where the first particular Baptist church, Reformed Baptist church, began. Wouldn't it be weird if we called ourselves particular Baptists today? I think it would be. That, 
that word has a little different connotation today, doesn't it? You know, my, my grandmother, she's very particular about things. <laughs> All right, any questions, comments? We got about a minute or so left here. Yeah, Johnny. Not really. There were Anabaptists, you know, in, in Europe who were, you know, generally um, Armenian. Uh, and there's, there's a whole different types of them and groups of them that were in, when we learned about when we considered the Counter-Reformation, some of them were heretical and, and some of them were pretty sound, but Armenian, you know. But, but as far as any kind of, um, um, you know, what we would call a Baptist ecclesiology, and especially, particularly when you're talking about a Reformed Baptist, a particular Baptist, this is the first that we know of in uh, coming out of the Reformation. So, you know, I look at it as, I'm not saying that it's the first time ever anybody ever practiced that. Obviously, you go back to the early church and the book of Acts and the early church period, there were churches obviously practiced believers' baptism. But, um, but in terms of the Reformation period, as the church is emerging out of Roman Catholicism and that, that Reformation is progressing, you might, the way I view it is that was just another step in Reformation. It was another step in the direction of the way the church was intended to be operated and organized. But it was, it was difficult because uh, still at that, point, at that point in history, you still had a kind of sacral view of the relationship of church and state so that they were closely wed together. And so how do you do that in a Baptist situation where infants aren't baptized? So, you know, in, in, a, in a sacral setting, you know, your baptism as an infant is also tied to your, your citizenship in the state. And so Baptists were kind of viewed almost as revolutionary because they're saying that these babies that have been baptized aren't Christians. You know, and that they really don't have, and, and even, even Pado, some of the pedo-baptists wouldn't say they were Christians in the sense that they've been converted, but they were objectively Christians. In other words, they were part of, legitimately part of the Christian church in England. And the Baptists would say, well, no, they're not part of the church. They're not, they're not members of the church. So what kind of status do they have as citizens then at that point. And so that was, in my opinion, you know, that was one of the last, um, what's the phrase that you use? The last, some, yeah, the last thing to fall, what do you call it? Yeah, the last step, major step in the development of the Reformation. Of course, I'm biased because I'm a Baptist, right? Okay. All right, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Time to, sorry, brother. Father, we thank you today for this time that we could study these things together. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from the things that were done rightly, the things that were done wrongly. We pray also, Lord, that these things would teach us humility. That we would remember that there have been devoted, true believers who love you and love your word, who have at different times disagreed about issues. And we pray, Father, that we would not be arrogant, but that we would be humble in our study of the scriptures and that we would follow your word wherever it takes us. 
So we commit these things to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.